Warren Buffett, BlackRock, and other institutional players dominate investments in commercial aviation. Why? Because it's one of the most profitable and predictable alternative assets that exists. And it's not tied to other markets such as real estate and the stock market. Is it safe? Well, imagine triple net leases to the likes of American Airlines and British Airways. Income is contractual and guaranteed by some of the biggest named airlines in the world. That's why this kind of investment was never available to the ordinary accredited investor. That is until now. Visit accesswealthaviation.com and check it out for yourself. Invest in an institutional team with over 200 plus years of combined investment experience in the aviation sector. Conservative investing with double digit returns and tax advantages. That's accesswealthaviation.com. Accesswealthaviation.com. You are listening to the Wealth Formula Podcast with Buck Joffrey. Get ready to change your life. Welcome, everybody. This is Buck Joffrey with the Wealth Formula Podcast coming to you from Montecito, California. And today, before I start, I want to remind you that there is a website associated with this podcast. It's called wealthformula.com. Go there to check out all the additional resources that we have for you. In addition, that's where you want to go if you want to sign up for the Wealth Formula Investor Club. Investor Club is an opportunity to get exposure to deal flow if you are an accredited investor. Now, even if you're not on the accredited investor club list, you've probably some seen some potential deal flow coming through so far. Now, those are limited. The things that you're going to see if you're not in this club are limited to what are called Regulation D 506C uh, offerings. Those are ones that actually require third-party verification of accredited investor status. So you're missing out anything that is not in that space because in order to be you know, exposed to anything that's not a 506C, that is actually maybe something called a Regulation D506B, you need to be onboarded first. You need to be part of my investor community. And that's what Investor Club is all about. So go ahead and, and go to wealthformula.com and make sure you sign up for there because there's lots of stuff happening right now. Just closing up a major uh, real estate acquisition apartment complex in Fort Worth, uh, which uh, I think it's going to do great. We have uh, some self-storage stuff coming up that's been vetted. We're going to hopefully have a few tax mitigating uh, strategies before the end of the year. And man, 2024, I think we're going to be very, very active. I think it's going to be a good year for investing. So again, go ahead and sign up. Sign up. If you are an accredited investor, start getting onboarded. Go to wealthformula.com. By the way, that is very different from something called Wealth Formula Network that we have. Uh, Wealth Formula Network is a paid subscription type thing. Starts with a course. Then you uh, get to be part of sort of this inner community that uh, meets uh, on Zoom every other week and as a Facebook group. But I, I don't want you to confuse that. That does not, being part of that group has nothing to do with deal flow and investing. It's more an opportunity to just be part of a community, learn from each other and that kind of thing. You can also go to wellformula.com for that as well. Now, let's move on. Let's talk about personal finance, which is what this uh, whole thing is all about. And, you know, when I think about personal finance, I cannot talk about it without talking about tax mitigation strategies. I think about this a lot. You know, it's funny because it's NFL season and I'm glued to the TV despite my team's, well, it was a rough start. And the fact that we lost our starting quarterback for the year 
and actually we seemed to still win with a fourth string quarterback last week, which is pretty amazing. But in case you don't know, my team is the Minnesota Vikings, and our quarterback that went down was Kirk Cousins, who just uh, had a brutal Achilles tendon tear. Seems like everybody's tearing their Achilles tendon these days. Is it just me? I mean, I, I don't remember hearing about so many Achilles tendon injuries. And I'm not even talking about NFL players. I'm talking about neighbors. I mean, it's weird. I don't know if there's something in the water that's making our Achilles tendons weaker. Like in my day, no one tore an Achilles tendon. That wasn't a thing. They're made it up. It's a, mu- it's, it's, it's a made-up thing, I think. Anyway, Kirk Cousins makes a lot of money. Guaranteed contract, 2023. He's doing like $30 million bucks. We're doing, at this point, uh, watching TV and rooting on the team. You know, of course, when we think of professional athletes, we generally do, you know, we think of these people who are crazy rich. So that might not surprise you, 30 million bucks, right? I mean, but you might be surprised to know, I actually, actually I was, that the actual median salary in the NFL in, in 2022 was only $860,000. And I know for a fact that a lot of you Wealth Formula listeners make more than that. So, congratulations, you make more than a professional athlete, you lucky dogs, you. When I hear those numbers, though, in the context of the NFL, you know what I think about? I think about taxes, right? Kirk Cousins, he may be making $30 bucks a year, but he's probably paying $12 million of that in taxes. And those guys at the median salary level, which I said was about eight hundred sixty grand, they are probably still paying about four hundred grand. I mean, they're W-2 wage earners. It's just like really, really hard not to pay those taxes. And then you start thinking about, well, some of these guys are playing in California. And holy cow, I think I had like, you know, 12, 13, 13%, I think, for state taxes on top of the highest federal. Oh, my gosh, it's brutal. Again, no one's starving even after paying those taxes, you know. I mean, it's it's like... a as they say, champagne problems. Is that a Taylor Swift thing? It might be. After all, it's not really about how much you make, though, at the end of the day. It's about how much you keep. And every person's finances, in my, my mind, are, they're like a small business. And I think that that's the way you ought to approach it. You have income coming in. You have expenses going out. A small business is going to do whatever it can to decrease expenses so it can keep more profit. So if you, you, you think of yourself as a business, what's your biggest expense? Probably taxes. And if that's the case, what are you doing to try to reduce those expenses and bring more money to your own bottom line? I mean, to be clear, we aren't talking about anything legal here. We, we, that's not what I'm trying to do. It's not what we do. As it turns out, luckily, if you get, educated on this area, there are plenty of things the government wants you to do that's going to help you uh, save taxes. You know, my friend Tom Wilwright says all the time, the tax code simply a series of incentives. The problem is most guys, uh, most CPAs, uh, they're kind of lazy. Maybe they don't know what they're doing. Who knows? Whatever. But they're just, they're not really looking at that for you. Now, that's the that's the smart way to look at it, right? A series of incentives. And as it turns out, your best way of saving on taxes tends to be through the way you invest. And there is simply no industry that has more tax benefits than real estate. There just isn't. I truly believe this. And 
want you to understand why. If you choose not to act on this information, that's fine. You know, I always tell my kids, it's funny, we're in the car and I say, and I'll do something, you know, like I'll park illegally or something like that. And one of them says, Daddy, you can't do that. And I said, girls, what are rules made for? And they all say in unison, to be broken, Daddy. Anyway, I don't know if that's, I'm probably going to get a child like uh, authorities after me for that. But anyway, uh, at least, you know, if you know these rules, you're no, you'll know what you're missing out on. So you can only blame yourself, right? And I'm going to tell you, I'm always amazed at how extremely financially sophisticated individuals have no idea what they're missing in this real estate space. They'll be like, oh my God, are you serious? That's crazy. Anyway, this week's Wealth Formula podcast, what we're going to do here is we've got a couple of different faces in the tax base. They're experts in real estate taxes. They're CPA types. And we're going to review some of the major concepts in tax mitigation in the real estate space. And there's going to be something there for everyone. Those of you who already use a lot of this stuff, but especially for those of you who aren't, you are going to want to stay tuned. So when we come back, let's learn something about tax mitigation in real estate. What do the Rothschilds, the Romneys, and the billionaire hedge fund managers know that you don't about growing and protecting wealth? As you might imagine, the wealthy have a few tricks up their sleeves. One strategy allows you to grow wealth tax-free at a compounding rate with no volatility. It protects your money from creditors and lawsuits, and it lets you invest the same money in two different places at the same time. How about that for amplifying wealth? To learn more, go to WealthFormulaBanking.com. Again, that's WealthFormulaBanking.com. Welcome back to the show, everyone. Today, my guests on Wealth Formula Podcast are Amanda Hahn and Matthew McFarland. They're the managing directors of Keystone CPA. They are CPAs and real estate investors themselves, and they both have tax planning expertise in working specifically with real estate investors and high net worth individuals. They're co-authors of Tax Strategies series, including the bestseller Tax Strategies for the Savvy Real Estate Investor. Amanda and Matt, welcome to Wealth Formula Podcast. Yeah, thanks for having us, Doc. We're excited to be here. Thanks. And well, let's let's jump right into it, guys. I mean, you you guys, uh, we, we, we talked a little bit offline here. This is a a group of uh, individuals and my, my listeners who are uh, tend to be real estate oriented and, and really for tax uh, benefits, but it's certainly a useful endeavor to go over a lot of these same types of uh, concepts for reinforcement. And hopefully we'll also get to some new stuff. So in your experience though, how do real estate investors, how are they most commonly overpaying uh, taxes? What, what opportunities are they not, seeing or or potentially not using in terms of tax mitigation <laughs> that's an interesting question i don't know that i would say real estate investors tend to overpay taxes uh, i would say maybe the average american probably overpays in taxes and especially mm -hmm. if you're someone of higher income uh you know higher professional right medical professional uh finance professional those are the people that typically end up overpaying in taxes simply because that's how the tax law is designed. It's really mm -hmm. designed to tax those who have uh, high income earners, high W-2 earners. Um, you know, I have a saying that if you're a real estate investor and you still owe a lot in taxes, only one of two things could be true. It's either one, you don't own enough rental real estate 
or two, you're not working with the tax, the right tax advisor. So in other words, if, if you own enough real estate and you're working with the right tax advisor, uh, as an investor, you shouldn't be paying a huge amount of money in taxes. Well, let's go into that then, because um, obviously there are different types of real estate investors. There's ones who are more passive and who have who are not declaring themselves as real estate professionals as say somebody like me is and there's no question it's it's a enormous advantage to be a real estate professional but maybe you can kind of you know talk about your commentary on on paying too much taxes but if you're a professional say you're a w-2 and you are a physician and you make let's say half million dollars per year so what are your I mean what's your take on that how do you how do you get around the the active income with passive investments. Yeah, I think there's a lot of misconception out there. You know, we we often come across investors who say, you know, um, my CPA tells me there's no benefit to investing in real estate because I'm purely passive. And um, I think that that comment, when the CPA gives you that comment, like, hey, you're a high income professional, you don't get any benefit from real estate. All they're saying is that your rental losses do not offset your W-2 income. And I think that's a very narrow way of looking at the facts. Yeah, I mean, it's it's not uncommon in our situation or our client situations where we see, you know, high um, income earning professionals, doctors, physicians, you know, medical professionals. They are there a lot of times they're investing in um, specific ancillary businesses to their to their medical profession, right? They've got a surgery center, they're they're doing some sort of dialysis center or something where they're not really actively involved in that. So to them, that is passive income. So there's times where, um, you know, if people find themselves in that situation, investing in real estate on the side can be a great way to shelter that income, that other passive income. So to Amanda's point, I think people forget a lot that, Hey, if you're getting a K one with $200,000 of passive income from a surgery center and you get get sheltered from real estate syndication losses, you've just had $200,000 you didn't have to pay taxes on, right? I mean, may not have offset your W-2 in that particular situation, but that is a tax savings, obviously, right? And also, too, I think it's just, even if you're someone who has no other passive income and all you have is passive income from a real estate syndication and some losses from it, um, it's still a tax benefit, right? Because you've now generated cash flow and appreciation without paying the 30 to 50% taxes. So more income without more taxes, I think that's always a win and that's applicable to everyone, even if you're purely passive as a real estate investor. Let me back up a little bit because I think this is an important point. And you know, it's something that I talk about quite a bit, you know, our investors use, but I think it's useful. Matt, you talked about the, the income that comes from, say, a surgery center, we see that a lot in our investor club. Okay, so, and and just, I'm going to put a scenario out there and you tell me if I'm right or wrong or correct me along the way, but I want to create an illustration here so that people understand. What you're talking about is active income is basically W-2 income or anything that you're creating, you're, you're doing a job, you're spending your day working for that. And, the, and, and from the tax rules are basically, that's a different bucket of income than a uh, type of income that's coming to you from, say, as you mentioned, well, first, most commonly, what we talk about is real estate passive income, but other sources of passive income could be, say, you own a surgery center or you own a uh, GI center or some sort of nephrology thing where, you know, there's a, there's a million different things, and especially in medicine, where you can have 
these sorts of benefits of passive income. I've seen this in our group where CPAs have not recognized that and people have paid that, uh, paid that as active income and not offset. But the general rule is that in passive income, passive income can be offset by passive losses and active income really mm-hmm. only by active losses. So what you're saying is if you get a K-1 with a, a loss from real estate depreciation, that is in the same bucket is the income that's coming in from your surgery center that you own, but you don't work in or that you don't necessarily do very much in. And so you're able to take that income and use the K-1 losses from real estate and offset income on that surgery center. Is that right? Is that fair? Yeah, no, that's, that's exactly right. I mean, we had, um, you know, we had a client come to us a couple of years ago that was, you know, physician new to real estate because he knew that we worked with real estate investors and looking for ways to help them save taxes obviously and in his particular city he was making almost a million dollars in this passive k1 income from you know surgery center something like that and so for him you know it didn't need to be a real estate his goal was how do i offset this million dollars and right. it was you know showing him how to do that through investing in real estate syndications who are you know generating losses through depreciation and accelerated for costs, like all that good stuff. Right. So, uh, yeah, that totally works a lot. Yeah. And I think one of the things that you, um, that we see a lot to, you kind of alluded to is that, you know, that, um, uh, people typically CPAs, unfortunately want to try to make everything active, right. Cause that's kind of like, Hey, we, we want real estate to be a, an active loss. And so let's make everything active. Um, and we just saw that with a couple months ago in reviewing a tax return, where it was a physician who had a bunch of different investments and um, the draft return, the CP actually grouped everything together yeah. to make it active. But when we go through everything, okay, how, what are you doing in this investment? What are you doing with that investment? It's like, hey, a lot of these are actually passive. Let's not group it with the active stuff because if we leave them passive, now all your real estate losses can offset it and save a bunch on taxes. So I think it's taking the time to really go through every investment and, and really kind of figure out is this active or passive versus just a blanket statement group everything to try to make it non-passive. Right? I'm just curious, is that just because they don't really know the law or is it just a little bit of just laziness? I mean, I, I'm curious on that because I've seen it so many times yeah. and and frankly, I'm so knee deep in this stuff all the time that it's so blatantly obvious to me. I'm, I'm a surgeon, not a CPA, right? And so right. I, I'm curious, what you what's know, your take on that? I think, uh, you know, I don't, you know, maybe, maybe, or maybe not in that situation, but sometimes what I think will happen is that first year it'll make sense to group it because maybe they've got a, maybe they've got a, a rental law, a self rental law. They're renting their building to their, you know, physician practice or something. And Hey, we want to take that depreciation loss and, you know, offset against. So there, there's a time where that makes sense, but I think what's happening maybe the subsequent year or the subsequent two years, they're not looking at this, the facts again every every year, right? And they're just saying, well, this is what we did two years ago. And, you know, assuming that's the same. But, you know, it is something you can you can and should look at, obviously, every year. Yeah, that's that's. I think that that's probably makes sense because I've not had anyone ask me this question. So in the tax field, uh, we have something that we call Sally. Sally, which stands for same as last year. Uh, and you can ask, you know, your accountant or all accountants what Sally means. Everybody will tell you that. Um, and I think it's the whole that Sally concept, like Matt was saying, right? Last year we said it was um, an active because there were some losses. And so the future people who prepare the return, like, oh, same as last year, it's always going to be an active income. Or, you know, or maybe they're not being, you know, strategic and proactive and it's kind of their reactive thing where we've got 
five days ago until the tax returns due, and we're <laughs> trying to slam out, you know, 50 tax returns or something, you know, who knows what it is, right? Yeah, but, no, no, I, I get it. I'm just curious because I see it a lot, and I'm, I'm always like, yeah. I'm, I mean, I'm, and I hate to be in a situation where I literally have told investors, you know, I, I think you need a new CPA. I mean, I think that's what I think you need if they're, if they're arguing on this point, because I, these are very, pretty obvious types of, you know, uh, situations where something is passive. It's clearly passive. I mean, it should be categorized that way. At any rate, talk about the, you know, I think we on this show often refer to this concept of real estate professional designation. And I oh, let's review that again, because I think that is, uh, that comes up a lot. And it is in many ways, in my view, the holy grail of, of uh, tax mitigation. Why is, define it for us and tell us why it's, uh, why it's so beneficial. Yeah, um, I think I'll start with why it's beneficial, right? Um, we just spent a lot of time talking about passive losses. And so um, in the normal sense, if you're a single person working a W-2 job or a married couple working a W-2 job and you have higher income, your rental losses are considered passive, which simply means that they offset taxes from other passive income, but not your W-2 income or your medical business income. Um, unless if you or your spouse is a real estate professional. So in other words, once you or your spouse is a real estate professional, now your rental losses doesn't only offset other passive income, it also offsets your active income, like your job, like your business. And so especially for higher income individuals who are, have a growing portfolio, it's very important to, at some point, try to be a real estate professional because then you can kind of marry the two worlds together. Yeah, and you know, again, the benefit, I mean, it, you know, you could be making half a million dollars, be in the, you know, 40% between federal and state tax rates. And if, you know, you can create a loss on paper through depreciation for your rental properties, be a, be a real estate professional. I mean, depending on what the loss is, obviously that could save you 40 cents on the dollar. So not uncommon to see huge tax savings to your point for yeah. people that can't qualify. Yeah. And I think that the common misconception when we say the word real estate professional is people think they have to go out and get licensed and start selling real estate. When in fact, it's neither of those things. Real estate professional, that term only exists in the tax world. And basically there's three tests to me. One is you spend at least 750 hours in real estate. And that could be you being a syndicator, you know, owning rental properties, all types of real estate stuff. Um, the second rule is you have to have more time in real estate than your job. And this is the killer for people who have W-2 jobs, because let's say you're working 2,000 hours in your job, you got to have more than 2,000 hours in real estate to be a real estate professional. Um, and then the third one is you have to meet material participation, which several different ways to meet it, but the most common way to do it is you spend at least 500 hours on the rental real estate property. So once you meet, uh, you or your spouse meets these three roles, then you are a real estate professional, which simply means now the rental losses offset W-2 and other. And you got to keep a diary of those hours, right? Yeah. I mean, for, you know, obviously for kind of audit protection and things like definitely recommended to keep a log of your hours. And it, you know, it can be as simple as Keeping in Excel, you know, some people like to use Excel. There's there's apps out there, but yeah. essentially, you're it's you know it's your um, it's your proof in case you do get audited that hey, I didn't yeah. meet the rules, and you know this is all good. One of our clients, who's um, actually a Harvard graduate uh, physician, created the app. It's called Reps Tracker. You might have heard of it. Um, uh -huh. And uh, so that's been really helpful because it's, it's strange that, you know, apps didn't exist before then, right? But now it's just on your phone. Yeah. You can track your hours in real time. But yeah, uh, I've not been, uh, I've not heard it called a diary, but yes, some sort of system where you're tracking yeah. those hours. Because if you're audited, you do have to prove those hours. Yeah. Well, I, I kind of find that almost comical in a way though, because it's like, yeah, I, you know, uh, if you're a real estate syndicator with a billion dollars under management, 
you know, like in, in my case, for example, like keeping a little diary, you know, a little tracker thing. I mean, it seems kind of ridiculous, <laughs> but it is what it is, right? One of the things that you mentioned is challenging there is like, okay, a lot of these people in our group are full-time professionals, but you did want say one other thing that was very, we've see very frequently is that if there's a, say there's a couple and, uh, you know, one of the, the husband or the wife is a physician and the other one does tend to, you know, sort of uh, uh, deal more on the real estate side and the investment side, that spouse may end up being the real estate professional. And because they're filing jointly, there is a potential offset there for the active income for the professional. Is that right? Yeah, absolutely. That's, that's the, that's can be a huge benefit for a, for a married couple where one of them is, you know, maybe working full time in that situation. And the other one is, you know, maybe, you know, stay at home spouse, but you know, wants to get into real estate or already is in real estate and self-managing everything and kind of meeting all those requirements because yeah, once you file a joint return, you're obviously both saving from it, right? Yeah. yeah. We saw this a lot, actually, um, during COVID and shortly thereafter, too, especially for a lot of our clients who are both in the medical profession and just one person decides after looking at the numbers, like, hey, it kind of yeah. makes sense for me to just stop working. Yeah. Uh, or not, maybe not necessarily completely stop, right? Because you still want to keep your credentials up, but maybe you know, really go down to just a couple days a month. Um, and being able to utilize that real estate professional tax benefit in a, a very impactful way. Yeah, that's a very interesting point because I've seen that a few times where people have done the numbers in our group and it literally makes sense for the spouse to no longer actually have a job because they save more in taxes by having that spouse focus on real estate and becoming uh, REP status than actually creating income. It's it's sort of like ridiculous, but it's, I mean, like just the way the tax law works that way, but it is, that's how powerful this thing can be. So other question, there's another way that you can get some of these same benefits without being an REP and that's uh, in the Airbnb world, right? Yeah, that's what, that's one a lot of our clients are using right now is we kind of, uh, I don't know, lack of, a, lack of a better term, we call it the short-term rental loophole. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's, you know, the, the our real estate professional status is applicable for long-term rentals. Whereas if you are investing in short-term rentals and in the tax world, they define a short-term rental is that the average customer stay during the year is seven days or less. So not necessarily that you're putting it on Airbnb or Verbo. It's just, what is, if it's seven days or less, you've got a short-term rental. If it's eight or more, you've got a long-term rental. So in that short-term rental space, yeah, it's a lot easier to kind of almost utilize the same strategy where, you know, are we creating losses on paper through maximizing depreciation? If we are, it can be a, um, an easier threshold to meet in terms of the hours and term and being able to use those losses to offset your uh, active income. Yeah. So that's, I mean, there's lots of different ways once you kind of uh, get into this, what's your take on entities? What's, you know, that's a, that's a question that people often have. Should I put my real estate in uh in an LLC or should I put it, you know, or should I just, is it okay to keep it in a living trust or, you know, what, what's your take on that? Gosh, I mean, you know, the, it really, if we're talking about rental investors, it really yeah. doesn't make a difference from yeah. the income tax perspective because we get the same benefit either way. Right. So, so really we're talking about real estate professional status, or we're talking about short-term rental loophole in terms of what type of income that loss can offset. 
But having said that, um, obviously, there is also the added benefit uh, from a liability protection perspective of putting rentals in an LLC. And so especially for uh, most of our high income or high net worth clients, very important to make sure you have a good legal team uh, that's working on your behalf. Because what you don't want to do is like you've built up all this wealth and then you have a small single family in Tennessee where the tenant sues you and they get access to all this other stuff you've built, right? Or maybe maybe you've got a commercial property where you know you're renting one unit to your medical business and you're renting out the other units and somebody slips and falls and they want to sue you know the owner, which is you. That's where you're going to want to you know use you know an entity of some kind like an LLC for asset protection reasons for sure. Is there ever a role for a C corp? Yeah, for sure. For the most part, though, the C-Corporation will not own or should not own appreciating assets, mm -hmm. which in our conversation is real estate, right? So the C-Corp generally will not own the rental real estate. Um, reasons being that, you know, the C-Corp will trap the tax benefit. If there's depreciation, it gets trapped in the C-Corp, whereas we want it to offset our personal income taxes. Um, and also, eventually, when you sell that asset, C-Corps don't have capital gains tax rates that we do as individuals. So pretty detrimental on those two parts. But um, where we mainly see C-Corporations are they're, they're added as kind of like a, an outside service. So a marketing like arm, property management, property management arm, right? Those are the two most and, and why. Why would that be beneficial in that? Yeah, the so yeah, the benefit of the C corporation. I mean, it depends on the taxpayer. There's different benefits. Uh, one example would be to be able to write off more out of pocket medical expenses through like a medical reimbursement plan. Um, so, I mean, you know, hopefully you don't have a lot of out-of-pocket medical expenses. For some of our clients who do, the C-Corp is a great way to utilize that. And then the other one is just the difference in tax rate arbitrage. You know, if your personal rate is 37%, but you can shift some of that into the C-Corporation at 21%, that could make sense. But um, it's a, a probably a pretty in-depth conversation to have with your tax advisor. It's definitely, it's definitely a numbers numbers game, numbers analysis for sure. Yeah, because the C-Corp also does have double taxation. So if at some point you take it out in the form of salary or dividends, there is additional taxes on that. Um, so it does work in certain instances. I would just say it doesn't work in terms of holding the asset itself. One of the things that people worry about a lot, especially when you're starting to talk about REP status, using some of these... Um, VRBOs, that kind of thing that we, the short-term rental thing that we just talked about, all these strategies that are certainly legal strategies, but they worry about audit, right? And how would you say is the best way to audit-proof your returns? It's such a great question. And I, I mean, I, you know, you did hit the nail on the head. I mean, it's, it's something that people should think about. They should plan ahead for, um, shouldn't necessarily be afraid of it. Um, but in terms of audit proofing, I mean, our recommendation is the best way to do that is is now, right? So if you know you're going to get audited, it's not going to happen three necessarily three months after you file your return, right? It's going to happen two, three, four years down the road. And you know, if you're like me, I can't remember what I had for breakfast. So how are you going to remember what happened three years ago? Right. So you know, best best is to get all your ducks in a row right now, right? Get your you know your log of hours if that's what you're doing with real estate or your your you know invoices and you know receipts and. All that stuff again is you know something you can have an assistant do you know you know you can do keep scan copies nowadays obviously so it's a lot less uh, pain painful than it used to be I think when when you think about it from that perspective mm -hmm. yeah I think you know, just making sure you do proper planning 
right? I mean, what is what is tax planning? Tax planning is really taking a look at what are all the transactions we're going to do and then factoring what are the, how do I do it in a way that gives me the most tax benefit? And so if you know the law and you have your facts in line with what the law needs to see, then even if you're audited, you're able to substantiate your cases. I think it's the people who don't do planning. We're kind of like, hey, I heard about real estate professional status. I don't have the hours, but let me just go for it anyway. Yeah. Those are the people that are going to get into trouble. Um, and, you know, there's what is like $80 billion now going towards the IRS. Every day they're coming out with like, hey, we're targeting high income earners. We're targeting real estate. We're targeting partnerships. Um, so, yeah, I think it's you know more important than ever to make sure that, that you don't just like know there's tax strategies, that you actually are implementing it the correct way. Mm hmm. Yeah. And is there statistics in terms of if you do register as a, as a real estate professional that you are at higher risk of audit? Um, you know, if there are statistics, I don't really know. I think in our firm, um, fortunately, we've had very low audit risk and our firm is made up mostly of real estate investors. Not everyone's a real estate professional, but I think over 90, probably 99 percent of our clients are in real estate from, you know, a small operator all the way to some of the most influential real estate syndicators in the nation. And so we haven't really seen like a large percentage of people being audited because they're real estate professional. Um, in fact, you know, a lot of the audits that come through our office, real estate professional is not even something they question. Kind of similar to what you were saying, Buck, you know, like, hey, I'm a large syndicator. Are they really going to question and ask me? Um, you know, I mean, depending on the auditor, right? But oftentimes, right. they it's, it's not really a concern of theirs. Right. Um, that's not their main concern, right? Yeah, I right. think it's more, I think a lot of times it can be more like the little things that trigger the audits, right? You didn't, you didn't attach your real estate professional aggregation election. You didn't, maybe you didn't list real estate professionals, your occupation, and you were, you put down that you're a doctor. Like, yeah. well, that's, you know. Kind of yeah. little things like that that can that can trigger audits sometimes, but it's always the stupid like yeah. Yeah. stuff. Like uh, we have one's like, oh, you know, with this client uh, uh, said, you know, why why was I audited? The auditor said, oh, you didn't issue a ten ninety nine. You paid a large amount for a contractor for your to help with your rehabs, but you didn't issue ten ninety nines. Um, and so just something super silly like that that ends up with you know, interesting. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. There are other things that you can do. Investors can or, uh, potentially incorporate their kids uh, into these strategies as well. Can you give us an example of that? Yeah, that's one of our favorite um, strategies that we share all the time. We call it income shifting, but um, basically it's like, hey, you know, we're spending money on our kids already. How can we take a tax write-off for it and have them earn that money instead of just giving them an allowance? Right? Yeah, I mean, obviously you get, you know, the way to get them to help you in your business, right? So you're hiring them just like any other kind of part-time employee, find something that they can do in their business based on their skill set and their age, pay them something reasonable for, you know, what would you pay someone else at that same age to do the same work? If you're in, you know, 40% bracket, um, you know, most people nowadays can make $12,000, $13,000 and not have to pay any income taxes. So if you're paying your kids $10,000 and saving four grand and they're not having to pay any income taxes on $10,000, then obviously as a family, you just save $4,000 on money that we know you were already giving them anyway. Right. Right. So right. that's kind of where, that's kind of where the strategy works, uh, works in favor. It does have to be reasonable though. So yeah. depending on the kid's age and what they can actually do, um, really important to make sure what they're doing, the compensation is reasonable. Like we have a 12 year old. Um, I don't think he can earn $12,000, but we certainly are using income shifting a little bit for what's appropriate I mean, I for that if age. If we paid him, you know, based on hourly rate of playing video games, he could probably get it there. Yeah. 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 For sure. Uh, 
Yeah. So let's talk a little bit about, you know, some of the other laws that are beneficial. Some of them are in place, are changing. Maybe you can do this. Um, I mean, a lot of people in our group know exactly what a cost segregation analysis is and what a bonus depreciation is. But maybe if you want to review that, because that's something of a, a little bit of a moving target and is, is actually very, has been very impactful in the last few years, especially. Yeah, I mean it's you know obviously your 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 crowd's gonna know obviously when we, when we buy a rental real estate you get to take depreciation you know I kind of like to I, I like to refer to it as ninth wonder of the world because it's like a paper paper write off you get every year against your income from the property yeah uh, obviously very unlike you know you invest in stocks you're not writing off your stocks until you sell the stock years down the road but they do let you write off your real or portion of your real estate every year I mean and, you know again the normal way is. 27 and a half years for your residential building, 39 years for your commercial building. But if you can, someone can do a cost segregation study where they're going in and looking at the building and saying, Hey, some of these components are more like five-year assets or 15-year assets, things that can be depreciated quicker. That's a win by itself because now we've just front loaded and taken more depreciation up front. But then when you add the layer of bonus depreciation onto that, that's where it kind of, you know, kind of supercharges it. Yeah, I think one of the changes you were mentioning is, you know, right now we have 80% for 2023, and uh, that is on the schedule to go down. For the, for the bonus. For the bonus, yeah. and um, it's scheduled to go down to 60% next year. So naturally, we have investors who are concerned, like, oh, no, you know, I'm going to have 20% less depreciation, and that's not true. Um, all that means is, you know, right now we can take 80% of that bonus depreciation up front. The remaining 20%, we're still depreciating it. It's just over the life of the asset. And that's the same for next year too, right? We just have less upfront, but we still have the rest over time. Yeah. And just for clarity, a cost segregation analysis is an engineering study. And basically what it does is it splits a property into real property which is like, you know, the real estate proper and then personal property. And I would like to think of that as, the things that you can like pull out and throw out onto the front lawn, right? The curious okay. thing, but what in our experience, and, and you can you can correct me or you know if you have a different experience, but in my experience, generally speaking, in multifamily and apartment buildings, on average, it's been about thirty percent personal property and seventy percent real property. And what was remarkable about that in the last few years was bonus depreciation. Bonus depreciation was like 100% last year and the year before that. And so if you had 70% LTV, in other words, 30% equity, 70% debt, you were investing and then you'd get a K-1 that was essentially offsetting all of the equity. So it was almost like this, you were incentivized, I was incentivized personally to invest in real estate because it seemed like every time I invest, it was taking money off of my tax bill. And that was just incredible. Now this year it's 80%. So it's, it's not quite the same next year. It's 60%. Then it goes down to 40 and then, and then 20, right. And then back, then you're basically back to the five year normal personal property depreciation, but that is an enormous, uh, enormous advantage there. How do some of these laws, and I, I can tell you how it does in California, but how do different different states, how do, how do laws, uh, you know, generally vary there? And I can tell you one in California, but <laughs> that kind of sucks, but <laughs> go ahead. Why don't talk you? talk about California all day long, but. <laughs> yeah, I feel like, you know, the state, I mean, states are almost like their own different countries when it comes to taxes. You know, every state 
has a different, uh, you know, different rules. Uh, so some states follow bonus depreciation and some states don't. California as an example. Some yeah. some states allow for a real estate professional loophole and some states don't, like California, for example. <laughs> uh, so yeah, there's a handful of states who just, you know, don't necessarily follow federal law. I think it's really important for people to understand, though, that the state laws do not impact your federal deduction. So a common question we get a lot is, okay, Amanda, you said California doesn't allow for bonus. And so this property is in California, which means I don't get any benefit. Well, that's not true. For federal tax purposes, you still get bonus depreciation. You still get the benefit. It's just that it's not going to offset your California tax. Right. Right. I mean, and just for, just for example, I've, uh, you know, I've paid um, more, more state taxes than federal taxes for, I don't know how long here. So as long as I've lived in California, for sure. What are some of the other laws that we may want to know about that maybe some of this stuff, if there's some new stuff coming down the pipe, I don't know. I mean, is there anything else that that's worth worthwhile for us to to talk about? Well, I think uh, you know, talking about the bonus appreciation, there has been talk that they were going, they're going to kind of retroactively bring it back to a hundred percent. Now, obviously, kind of wait and see game, right? Is is that going to be something that they prioritize between now and December thirty first? Hopefully, but. Um, you know, so at least that's being talked about. Um, why would they do by, that? You know, I mean, I mean, I'd, I'd love to see that, but why would they do that? Given- I think they, they want to, you know, there's a lot of people who want it, obviously. So they're the, you know, the, the, the lobbying and all that stuff is there, but I think from a investment project, they're trying to incentivize people to make investments and spend money in, in the economy and that kind of stuff. Yeah. That's my, that's my take on it. But Yeah, for sure. And we see that firsthand, right. With our investors, like when there was 100% bonus depreciation, a lot of people, especially for multifamily investors are like, Hey, this is the year we're going to do all new appliances. This is yeah. the year we're going to do a bunch of these improvements. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I think from a, you know, from that's what the government is trying to incentivize us to do. Right. Yeah. Um, you know, there's a 1031, exchange you know always on the chopping block uh haven't yeah. seen anything about that recently but you know uh i mean i bet you that you know when we get closer to election time that's going to be back in the conversations again so uh that's one that's just kind of always you know people talking about whether that will be changed or what the change is going to be is that is that on the table right now because uh i mean that's it's that's not, it's not it, it just comes and goes. Right? Yeah, it comes really and goes, the table, and they it's always never really off the table either. You know, it's like it's it's there. People keep talking about it, and it's like, but they were talking about it, you know, prior to, you know, when Biden was running for president, it was one of his talking points. You know, and it's, so it's kind of like you know, it's out there, and it's you know until. Yeah. Also, I think in terms of changes, um, Secure Act 2.0 came out uh, with respect to retirement. Uh, you know, the age of distribution, you know, what kind of accounts you have Roth IRA money in. Um, we have a lot of clients, both as as investors and also as sponsors for syndications, uh, where a lot of money from retirement accounts can go into real estate through self-directed investing. And so I think it's a good move on the government to, um, you know, the trend is towards uh-huh. allowing more people to have money in retirement in Roth buckets and then letting it stay in there longer, right? By so- delaying that retirement minimum distribution age. So I think it's something, you know, for, I think for most clients or, you know, just people in general, right? We don't look at our retirement bucket. It's kind of just like, eh, it's in the stock market. Just kind of leave it there. But it's actually one of our most precious buckets. Of yeah, of course. Because it's growing tax afford or tax free. And can you, can you clarify exactly what that change is? I'm not sure I understand the, um, what, what, what is the difference that may be allowing more people to use Roth money? I mean, can't you just do a self-directed IRA already? I mean, what, what's different? 
Oh yeah, the change is now with respect to self-directed investing. Self-directed investing follows all the same rules as regular retirement yeah. investing. Um, but what the government is now allowing you to do is to delay the date when you are required to take out distributions um, to later. Because right? the concept is we're all living longer, right? So yeah. we're living longer. Longevity is is increasing, and so we're not going to force people to take money out earlier. Yeah. Um, with respect to the Roth, it's um, now you're able to have SEP IRAs. Before that was only pre-tax, so you're going to be able to have that go into Roth set. SEP IRA as well. So again, just incentivizing you to save for retirement yourself. Got right? it. Got Rather it. Rather than Got social it. security. Yeah. Yeah. Makes sense. Fantastic. Well, um, how can, uh, tell us a little bit about your practice and, and, you know, who your clients are and that kind of thing. Yeah. I mean, our, uh, so our firm is Keystone CPA and we work mostly with real estate investors. I would say a hundred percent of people come to us because they are uh, going to invest in real estate. So our client profile is, you know, anywhere from high income earners just starting out in real estate uh, to people who are doing large syndications of apartments, mobile home parks and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, and we, you know, we kind of, uh, our niche is to specialize and focus on proactive tax planning. So uh, people come to us to kind of help them with the strategies up front. So obviously, you know, the best time to have that conversation is not April 14th. It's sure have the trans have before you have the transactions, obviously. So um, that's kind of what our practice focuses on is, you know, ways that we can help people practically save on their taxes through, you know, real estate investing and other strategies like that. How many, uh, how many CPAs are in the firm? Uh, oh gosh. <laughs> Depends on the day you ask, cause we're always growing. Um, so yeah, right now we have about 15, we have a team of 15 in total. Uh, that's CPAs and almost just also our support staff, but um, yeah, we're always looking to hire more people because what we found, I think you, you know, I think you might have found this too, right? Is there's not a lot of CPAs who are proactive in how they work with clients and and then even fewer who specialize in real estate. And so we've been really fortunate to have found this niche and we really help investors nationwide because uh, people are always like, hey, I'm in Ohio and I just can't find a CPA who does real estate and does planning in Ohio. Right. Yeah, it certainly you know, it, it certainly is a, is a weakness in the system, I think. Um, and also like, you know, just customer support or like, you know, client, uh, uh, support and, and, and all that kind of thing. But the proactive thing is really, really important. So good to hear that you guys are focused on that and how, uh, if people are interested, how can they get a hold of you? Uh, I think keystonecpa.com. That is our website. That's the best place to see us. Uh, we actually, uh, just released an ebook about passive investment uh, tax benefits. It's actually not on our website yet. So, Buck, I'll have to send you a separate email link to that. Sure. <laughs> not like people can't find it yet. Yeah. Um, for anyone who wants kind of like daily tax tips, um, the best place to find me is on uh, Instagram as Amanda Hunt CPA. And the best place to find me is sometimes in the background of her Instagram. <laughs> I was going to, that's so, that's so, uh, that's so new age of you to be found easily on uh, Instagram. I mean, CPAs usually aren't, you know, find us on Instagram, right? That doesn't usually don't hear your CPA right. say that, but, <laughs> uh, but yeah, <laughs> it's really interesting because tax is such a dry topic. And I think it's, uh, personally for me, it's been a challenge to, um, find ways to provide valuable information in like 30 second videos, you know, or like a screenshot. So yeah. uh, it's been fun. It's been a challenge, but also fun. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for being on the show, both of you, uh, Amanda and Matt, and I uh, would we'll love to have you on again sometime. Awesome. 
Yeah, thank you, Buck. I appreciate it. Thanks. We'll be right back. Self-storage is a necessary evil. It's where you keep your stuff and forget about it. No wonder this stuff is so profitable and recession resistant. The Wealth Formula community, well, we've benefited from that. We've made lots of money in this space with Reliant Real Estate, one of the largest self-storage companies in the country. With an average investor internal rate of return of almost 34%, with hold times just over three and a half years, these guys know what the meaning of velocity of money is. If you're an accredited investor, make sure to check out what they're up to right now at ReliantFund4.com. Again, that's ReliantFund4.com. Welcome back to the show, everyone. Hope you enjoyed it. And again, I just want to remind you, this is probably a good time for you to make sure to join Wealth Formula's accredited investor club at WealthFormula.com. We have a lot of potential opportunities for tax mitigation. As you heard, and real estate is a good, a good place to do that. And we do a lot of that real estate stuff in there. So get onboarded. Hopefully start, you know, trying to think if it, maybe if it's too late in 2023, I don't know. It might be, it might not be. But as again, as Tom Wheelwright says, if you want to change your tax, you got to change your facts. And so you got to do it at some point, or you're just going to be on the sidelines paying all the taxes that you don't really legally have to do. Okay. That's all I got for this week. Uh, this is Buck Joffrey with Wealth Formula Podcast signing off. Thank you for listening to the Wealth Formula Podcast. Visit us on the web at wealthformula.com. The information contained in this podcast are opinions, not fact. As always, consult your own financial team before making any investment. See you next time. Buck Joffrey here from Sapio with Buck Joffrey. Aging might become reversible over the next 10 to 20 years. It's already being done in lab animals, so it's just a matter of time. Our challenge? To be healthy enough for when that time comes. As a former scientist and surgeon myself, my goal is to figure out how to do that and to share it with you. I wrote a book called Living Longer for Busy People that you can download for free at sapiopodcast.com. You'll be amazed at just how a few daily adjustments can add years of a healthy life for you. Again, download it for free, sapiopodcast.com.